Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I think if anything, it's sort of one of the only things that makes the novel brilliant in my eyes. Really? It's so spectacular that that sort of turning point has been caught it's almost a monument in a way you think this is this is the point at which perhaps things went wrong hello everybody and welcome to the latest booker prize podcast with me james walton and me joe hamia and there's still early days for for the podcast so joe do you want to Say a few words about what we what we do here. Every week we'll be delving into Booker Prize related subjects of all kinds with an emphasis on variety. Obviously we'll be discussing past Booker novels, but also films and TV shows based on them, memorable or just plain weird past Booker ceremonies and controversies, themes from different decades, writers we think should have won, and perhaps even writers we think shouldn't have. Basically anything Booker related that we think is interesting, sometimes with the help of special guests. We'll also, of course, be keeping an eye on the year's Booker longlists and shortlists as they come along and any other exclusive Booker content as we go. And at all stages, we'd like you to be involved along the way. And in today's episode, we're going to be celebrating the 20th anniversary so, of when this happened. The winner of the 2003 Man Booker Prize for Fiction is DBC Pierre for Vernon God Little. famously said, I think I picked the wrong week to give up sniffing glue. You know? <laughs> that was DBC Pierre picking up the Booker Prize for his novel, Fern and God Little. But before all that, this is a relatively new podcast. And not only that, my co-hosts James and I are fairly new to each other. Each week we're going to ask each other a question and hopefully as we go along they'll become ever more zany and eccentric until we finally plumbed the depths of who we are as people. <laughs> oh my god, let's not do that. But okay, okay. Far away, Joe. All right. So, my question to you is quite tame this week. Oh, I good. thought I thought we'd start out with that. Well, mine to you is going to be bland beyond belief, so let's <laughs> see what you've got. Well, just as a way of getting to know you and so that our audiences can get to know you, James, I'd love to know what you consider to be, other than hosting this podcast, your career high so far. Oh, that's quite an easy one. I wrote and presented 17 series of uh, a literary quiz on Radio 4 called The Right Stuff which I'm hoping will be... Oh, is that with Sebastian Foote? That's right, and John Walsh. Yes, yes. And I was hoping that would get... I'm hoping that's howls of recognition all over the, <laughs> over the country at the mention of that show, um, it, it, we, uh, which I really liked. It sort of combined my slightly weird, if, if skill set's quite the word, but I do like writing quizzes, and I do like having a microphone and an audience and sort of showing off. <laughs> and uh, I do like books. So uh, that, it was really fun to do. You know? That's so funny, because I think I have listened to a few episodes of that, and I did not make the connection. <laughs> I see. No, okay. okay. Maybe, maybe suggest a few more. And my question to you, uh, as warned a little on the bland side, I mean, now you're a, a distinguished novelist, academic and critic, but what were your favourite books as a kid? Actually, do you know what? All, a lot of my reading sort of came out of, this is a bit of a classic example, and Medivh Emre has written about this in the 
in The New Yorker recently. I read Matilda very young and there's that fantastic reading list from Roald Dahl at the beginning when she's just discovered libraries and she's reading Kipling and Dickens and I really wanted to be like Matilda so I thought I'm going to go get all these books and I'm going to read them and of course they went completely over my head but that kind of instilled this appetite for reading beyond the realms of um, of maybe what I could do at the time and so I kind of arrived to a lot of novels that I later picked up as an adult very early on like Nabokov or Virginia Woolf. I think the book that I still kind of reread to this day that I read as a child is The Little Prince. Oh, right. Yeah, um, yeah. And that used to be a tradition of mine as a child up until I was about 17, once a year on my birthday to reread The Little Prince. And have you read it since then? No. Oh, it's interesting. I think about this stuff because I, I, I'm kind of, you know, approaching that stage of life where you think about having children and your and your friends are thinking about having children. And I do wonder how many of the books that I read as a child I would read to them. And the the Little Prince and perhaps Philip Pullman is is the only thing I could think of. And now when I think of children's fiction, I used to be a children's bookseller. I'm more inclined to go down the kind of Tuve Jansen, the Moomins yeah, route yeah. or you know, that there's nothing from my childhood. I mean, there was some Enid Blyton, or, but all of it sort of fades away in comparison to these big books that I was sort of aspiring to read. I wanted to be smart enough to understand them. Yeah, no, Enid, Enid, I, was, I was an Enid Blyton kid. I tried it on my, my, my own children. Um, and uh, Far Away Tree they liked. And they quite yeah. liked the ones the, 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 uh, with a guy called Fatty who may or may not be called fatty for the rest of <laughs> publishing future. But um, they like those ones, but not not so much. They did like Roald Dahl a real lot. I actually had to rebuy, because I think, I don't know where they've gone, but all my old copies of Roald Dahl novels have sort of been lost to time. And then there was that huge controversy that they were going to be, you know, rewritten and effectively censored. And I went on this massive spree of buying my favourites and buying my partner's favourites, and he liked The Twits and Fantastic Mr Fox, and I wanted The Witches and Matilda uh, of rebuying these books before they could be altered. But of course they won't be anymore, so... No, 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 <laughs> I think, I think it would be fair to say that Penguin have caved yeah. uh, while pretending not to. But anyway, should we get on to today's subject, yeah. which is DBC Pierre's uh, Vernon Godlittle, 20th anniversary of one of the more unexpected Booker winners, I think, possibly ever. And I thought it might be useful if I just set the, set the scene as to why why we would have alighted on this of all the books that we could have had the anniversary of. And I think um, two things that have been sort of constant in Booker Prize history have been controversy, manufactured or otherwise, and um, a sort of pendulum swing between high-mindedness and something more populist. So there used to be a thing, I think, called the Booker novel, or rather, you know, serious-minded, exploration of ideas, maybe not absolutely, you know, the easiest of reads, a bit of chin-stroking involved. And then every, every now and then, People have thought, well, that's a bit too high-minded. Let's shouldn't we have books that people that will fly off the shelves more? Particularly publishers have thought that. And um, we join um, the Booker Prize in the early twenty-first century, where it seemed to be the pendulum swinging more towards populism, having one of those moments. So, in two thousand two, the winner was *Life of Pi* by Jan Martel, which became a major motion picture in a way that, say, you know, *Hotel du Lac* by Anita Bruckner did not. Mm. And then we come to the year that we're focusing on today. The following year, *DBC Pierre's Vernon Godlittle*, a comic novel quite a romp and um i was around at the time you were 
depressingly five or something. I like. was five. Oh, God. Well, maybe six by that point. My birthday's in <laughs> yeah, May. Six or six. Yeah, that's one year yeah, more, yeah, James. Okay, fine. Uh, I, I wasn't six. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I do remember it. Uh, I do remember it being, you know, hip, actually. Quite a, a cool, hip book to have. And really? I, 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 yeah, yeah. And I don't think all Booker winners have been cool and hip, but this one certainly was. Uh, but this naturally led to controversy. There's um, a critical James Wood, very serious-minded critic. He's about the only person, I mean, he's really, really good and close reader of books. He's the only person where I, I ever, reading his reviews, think, oh, come on, mate, it's only a book, as he kind of <laughs> digs away earnestly. But anyway, he reviewed this in the London Review of Books, and he starts off by saying, what had happened is, that this was when it was the Man Booker Prize, it became the Man Booker Prize in 2002. Also uh, a source of great controversy. Also a source of great con- controversy, and particularly when James Wood suggested that the, the man group had asked for what he called shiny new populism, hence the win for Martel and for Pierre. Um, and then there was furious letters to the London Review, Review of Books by the administrator of the Booker Prize and uh, the chair of judges, uh, John Carey, uh, saying that you know, the man had put absolutely no pressure on them. This was diff- most defamatory and you know, possibly libelous. And James Wood slightly caved. He said, okay, they didn't. Shiny new populism was a coinage of mine, but you can't help noticing that the books are shiny and quite populist, winning at the moment. Um, so it might have been that. But my, my, I've got a slightly more possibly pompous theory that there was something quite poppy going on in the, in the whole cultural air at that time. And I did, I did look into um, the most successful bands in the UK in terms of singles were Robbie Williams, Girls Aloud, Busted, and The Cheeky Girls, whose big hit you may or may not remember was called cheeky song open brackets touch my bum close brackets yes, uh, yes. <laughs> a big and, part of my middle school disco <laughs> okay and uh also i think quite interestingly as far as i can see 2003 was the last year uh, in which the best picture oscar went to the film that had been the highest grossing of that year so the most popular film and the best picture were the same which was um lord of the rings return of the king so th- that would be my theory that this sort of pop- pop- poppiness is reflected a bit in the book of prize lineup because not only did Vernon God Little Win, but other books on the shortlist included um, Rick Lane, a big, another big seller, and Notes on a Scandal by Zoe yes. Heller, two books that people loved. There was, a, there was one book called um, Shop at, uh, more, perhaps a more old school Booker Prize um, entry called Schopenhauer's Telescope, set in, set in an unnamed uh, European town with an unnamed narrator, and that only got as far as the long list. Uh, well, as you pointed out with, with some alacrity, I was five or six in 2003, but I, I really wonder how much that holds up. Um, I had to reread. Life of Pi last year. Um, I interviewed Jan Martel, which you can find on the bookerprizes.com, our website. It's a great chat. Um, uh, very smoothly done. If <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm all about the promo. But yes, I reread Life of Pi last year and, and I did have that abiding sense that it was a sort of popular choice, a pop novel. But actually, I found it to be deeply philosophical and, and incredibly nuanced. And, and I thought that that label of it being a pop novel perhaps undersold it and I feel similarly about this book which I mean you will have read at the time but I'm coming to it for the first time 20 years after its win and I I don't know that I would call it a pop or a popular novel I would certainly call it as as James Wood did very cartoonish and and certainly a very visceral reading experience and maybe it's because the meaning of a of a popular novel or a pop novel has changed you know in in my day now <laughs> I, I I'm slightly confused from the perspective of someone who who doesn't have a memory of that time or only a kind of hazy memory of that time how that label could have arisen because Life of Pi to me is an extremely meticulous 
well-written philosophical novel and and this is you know almost literary to a fault really that's oh that's interesting and annoyingly possibly even true so <laughs> so it rather blows my theory out but, but again the memory of the time well mm. the previous three had been winners had been disgraced by J James Curtsy, which is fantastic but quite punishing yes. uh, the blind assassin by margaret Atwood, which i haven't read but but is big and the novel within the novel and then uh, peter carey's true history of the kelly gang which i have read so, and, yes. and is written at, and, and, it, and is a, it is a difficult read so all all quite established authors so i wonder if you know pop is simply a, a a way of saying we're going to give the mantle over to someone younger or less established yes possibly possibly that well maybe now's <laughs> the time to introduce vernon godlittle to our audience yeah go for it joe <laughs> not an easy one, but go for it. No, it's not an easy one. This is actually an incredibly sprawling book. It's narrated by our protagonist, who is in fact Vernon Gregory Little. And it starts in the aftermath of a school shooting in, I think, uh, the fictional town yeah. of um, Martirio, Texas. And Vernon, although he isn't a suspect, he has been taken into police custody by Vane Gury, who explains to him her worldview, and it's one that really comes to uh, to mess with Vernon in all sorts of ways across the book. She says that life is fairly black and white. It's full of binaries, really. There is either the truth or lies. There are either civilians or psychopaths. And... This doesn't quite work for Vernon. He's 15 when the book starts and he's 16 when it ends, but he's a kid and he's really still only just figuring out the stuff of life. Vernon, at the time of this school shooting, had been sent out to run an errand for his school teacher, Mr. Knuckles. And as such, he hasn't seen anything. But the shooter was a friend of his. His name was Jesus Navarro. And in fact, Vernon is one of Navarro's only two friends, which is why there's such great public interest in him. And as the plot goes on, what becomes apparent is that because Navarro's last act was to turn the gun on himself, Vernon, being one of his only friends, is an appropriate, as he puts it, scapegoat. Yeah. <laughs> So Vernon, we meet him in police custody. He's being questioned. And then fatefully, a friend of his mother's arrives, insists that Vernon must be famished, that he, he must need lunch, even though he's been offered chicken wings. And she whisks him away. This obviously sets Vainguri's mind racing. She thinks that Vernon must be guilty because he's flown from, from police custody. And when she catches up to him, she tells him as much. Now, Vernon is rescued, again, rather fatefully, by a man who appears from a white man, always a bad sign. <laughs> His name is Yalio Lali Ledesma. He claims to be a TV man, and he kind of talks Vernon out of trouble with Vainguri. But at the end of all of this, he looks at Vernon, he says, you owe me a story. And that, more or less, seals Vernon's fate. He goes home to his mum, who only really has an interest in him insofar as it progresses her social life. And a little bit of time goes by and it turns out that Lally is living out of this van and Vernon's mum takes him in. 
Lali's first great betrayal is to shack up with Vernon's mum. <laughs> and his second great betrayal is to promise Vernon a story which will run on TV, which will sort of redeem his good name, but which in fact paints him as a murderer. Vernon gets very angry, understandably, and sets about the project of trying to uncover Lally as a fraud, which he is, but it doesn't quite work. And so he decides that he needs to abscond to Mexico and he needs to go on the run. And I think I'll leave it there so that I don't spoil the ending. Readers can pick up the book and find out on their own whether Vernon lives or dies. I might spoil the ending, but we'll, we'll come to that. Uh, but yes, OK. Um, what, did you, what did you make of it? I have very mixed feelings about this book. Um, it's, a, it's an incredibly voice-driven novel, and the voice is very high-key. Um, it's Vernon's voice, which is rude and filthy and and often very funny um and also full of uh i guess life's deeper questions the ones that you can only really ask when you're a teenager do you want to give us an example of, of the voice so this is an extract from the book and and vernon actually it bears saying is talking about a kind of psychological knife that his mother has placed in his back and which she likes to twist in various motherly ways and he says I learned that the authorised world doesn't recognise the knife. Your knife is invisible. That's what makes it so convenient to use. See how things work? It's what drives folk to the blackest crimes and to sickness. I know it. The thing of everyone turning the knife just by saying hello or something equally innocent sounding. Courts of law would shit their pants laughing if you tried to say somebody was turning the knife just with their calendar dog whimpers. But here's why they'd laugh. Not because you couldn't see the knife, but because they knew nobody else would buy it. You could stand before 12 good people, all with some kind of psycho knife stuck in them that loved ones could twist on a whim, and they wouldn't admit it. They'd forget how things really are and slip into TV movie mode where everything has to be obvious. I guarantee it. What do you make, make of the voice? Because there's that, there's that, I think that happens in a lot of novels, really, but he's basically meant to be and is to all intents and purposes a dumb school kid didn't really learn to read or write didn't learn to write properly till he was about seven um and yet he writes prose like this is that I, I, to be honest that's sort of fine by me that's how novels work but, yeah. but, but it, is it is it a bit weird i mean that the, the, the idea that he's literate up until the age of seven and then suddenly comes out writing like this i think is one of those things that you have to sort of suspend your disbelief yeah, a little bit um, I'm not fussed about that either. I think where it falls down for me is that the book with this voice sort of oscillates between a very kind of high key absurdism, um, a slightly unbelievable absurdism in the best possible way. In a way, I kind of wished that this book was an episode of Black Mirror, I think is the best way to describe it. But then at other parts, it sort of diverges into a much more measured and a much more again, philosophical tone. And I think there's no in between. And it means that the overall effect is quite muddled and potentially lacks depth because just as you're getting into the stride of this very voice-driven narrative full of bombast and, and character-driven, plot-driven method, you're brought up short by these meditations on life, which are much quieter and, and much they do kind of make you scratch your head in a good way, 
But nevertheless, you are brought up short by them. And then you go to sort of start to get into them a little bit more. And all of a sudden, the novel starts barreling along all over again. And it's a bit stop and start. It's a bit jerky. And, and that's the only bit that sort of doesn't quite work for me with this voice. See, it's, it's fun. Uh, uh, I was thinking, actually, it's almost summed up by the fact that he calls these, I suppose, what we might call epiphanies or whatever. He calls them learnings, which is quite a crude word, isn't it? And then I had a sudden learning. Mm. And then he'll come up with some quite philosophical... Yeah, so the way that I thought about it last night, actually, when I was preparing for this conversation, is that I think this is a book that can't quite decide between show and tell. You know that if you've ever taken a creative writing workshop, you get told this really annoying thing of show, don't tell. And and I, I don't agree with that. I think it's perfectly fine to do either, but pick one. And I think this book is sort of stuck between showing you these sort of grotesqueries, these, you know, th there's a psychiatrist who, who comes up, who's quite pivotal to the plot, who molests Vernon. Um, there, there are these school shootings, you know, it, it's a, in a way an incredibly macabre book that's stuck between showing you these things in as brutal a fashion as possible and then telling you why they matter and why it's so horrible. And you don't need both. You either do one at full speed and let the reader make their mind up or you do the other and sort of let them sit with what's been told to you. Yeah, I must say rereading, I read it at the time and, and I, it did feel like a big blast of, not exactly fresh air, but just it did feel like a really good blasty read, you know, fantastic, mm. really barrels along. Uh, great that it won the book, uh, more, uh, funny, dark, um, macabre, as you say. But rereading it, it seemed to me it is quite a mess, this book, in mm. almost every way. Um, I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of great thrillers I've read that if I reread would all slightly fall apart plot-wise. But I think a book of winner, you should be able to reread without it falling apart plot-wise. I mean, for example, just a, a few examples. So you've got this guy, Lally, who, who starts off, he says his work for CNN. That turns out to be the initials of, a, of an electrical goods shop in some small <laughs> town in Texas. He's, he's basically a chancellor of a small town in Texas. Ends up as a major media mogul. Yes. Well, and how come? I mean, how does that happen? When does he make contact with Taylor to send her as the honey trap to, to Mexico? We don't know that. What, what are his motives in wanting to bring um, Vernon down? And then that bit where he's charged with the 34 murders. Yeah. And then the big turning point in his, in his trial is that they contact the, the guy he hung out with in Mexico, the lorry driver who took him through Mexico, who says, no, I didn't have a Vernon uh, Gregory Little with me. I had a guy called Daniel Naylor, which was the name he was he was using. But they could have sent a photograph. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it, I felt a, a bit that way with the with the satire. I mean, obviously, it's 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 a thumping satire on 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 on, on the media, and sometimes in, in a very good way. Towards the end, for example, I think this is good. This is he hears these headlines on the news: the body of the American will be flown home today. Forty refugees also died in the skirmish, said the news. After the break, the end of the road for serial killer Vernon Gregory Little. We'll have the latest on that failed appeal. And also the duck and the hamster that just won't take no for an answer. <laughs> you know, you see, that, that, seemed, that seems good because that's like heightened. Yes. But then the bit where they're on death row with people voting to see who's going to be executed seems to me preposterous, really. I think there's two kinds of sort of satire or, or, or comedy. One is, isn't it funny that or isn't it mad that, which is fine. Yes. And one, one isn't, wouldn't it be mad if... And I think that's different because if you say, wouldn't it be mad if people voted for who was going to die on death row? Well, yes, it would, but it's, but it's not going to happen. Yes. Although that being said, it is a clever book. It really is. I mean, I, when I started reading it, there were points that I, I was slightly either unconvinced by or repelled by. 
um, sat and thought about them for a while and realized that there is purpose to them. So for example, um, there's a sort of running gag in this book about the the inhabitants of Martirio being quite fat, though on diets. And obviously, I, I think at the time this was taken as a sort of uh, slander against Americans, you know, Americans are fat and lazy. But actually, the more I thought about it, the idea of these people who are dissatisfied and want to be fed, but are feeding themselves the wrong thing on these diets or at the barbecue chicken house or um, leads them to seek out slightly ever more grotesque and heightened forms of pleasure because they're not sort of taking care of themselves in the right way. So that made sense. You know, I, I at some point I kind of thought, why why Texas? This book could have been set anywhere. Why, why is it here? Yeah. I thought about it and really, where else are you going to set a novel that's partly inspired by school shootings. Well, there's or... also, and also maybe just on a purely logistical level, it makes it easier to get to Mexico, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I agree with you. I think there's more sympathy for the uh, for the women than you think. The, I think we both watched the coverage of the of the of the ceremony yes. on, on BBC Four uh, at the time, and there was much sort of chortling at. I felt uh, at um, at those women of the you know the boy's mother and this kind of coven of women who are kind of straight out of you know Jerry Springer or something chicken eating stretch pant wearing Texan women I, I felt dirty for liking this book so much it's so entertaining mm. and, uh, and that made me think well is he sort of punching down in, in you know in my right on way but actually he's not really there's this little bit here where his his mother says to him well Vernon you just know everything don't you. And Betty, which is one of the friends, one of the many fat friends, was class president of the fourth grade, you know, and had all the bubbly parts in school plays. Yes. She never cursed or smoked or drank like the rest of us, bright as sunshine she used to be, until she started getting beaten black and blue by her father, whipped until she bled. So while you're all critical and know everything about everyone, just remember that the rest of us are only human. It's cause and effect, Vernon. You just don't realise even Leona, who's a particularly sort of villainous example, was relaxed and sweet before her first husband went, you know, the other way. Yes. Um, so, so I think there is there is there is some sympathy with. I think you're totally right, and 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 that's sort of what I mean when I say that it, it is really, if you take it apart, a clever book and a book that has intent and that is uh, thought through. Just that when you put it all back together, it doesn't quite work. Cartoony is right, though, isn't it? It is quite cartoony in in plot and in characterisation. Whether or not that's a bad thing, I'm not sure, but. But then it sometimes isn't. You're right. It, 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 that, I think it is a mess. This book. I mean, an enjoyable <laughs> blast of a mess, but but a mess. And I'm not sure. I'm really how much it stands up to. I'm really curious scrutiny. because because you said that you enjoyed it when you first read it in 2003. Yeah. What about it then made it seem cool to you, or like you know the the book to have? I you you said that you met BBC PR at one point and shared a cigarette with him. Not not just one point. The the Booker Prize night itself. Actually. There you go. No, the thing about the thing about him was uh, for people. You know, for, let's face it, literary journalists are not the you know they, they tend to the poncy side. So th so this guy was the others, um, and but he um, you know he I think he did strike us as you know he's pretty cool. You know, he'd what had, about he'd, him? He'd, was had, cool. he'd had this rackety life. He was a bit bohemian. Taking a load of drugs, hung out in Mexico, knocked around the world, produced this book first off, and uh, so just before, not not long before the announcement, actually, uh, me and him sort of got chatting. And we went for a cigarette, but Wednesday went for a cigarette. In those days, not not inside, not outside, mm. uh, just in, you know, just to the side of one of the tables in the British Museum. <laughs> <laughs> Weirdly enough, it's uh, th this is really interesting to me because you know I'm I'm here sort of 
a generation or two on reading this for the first time. And, and that doesn't really come across. And in fact, what I sort of focus more on, both when I was watching the ceremony and while reading this book, is that there's a sort of tension in the portrayal of masculinity in this book that sort of comes to haunt um, GBC Pierre as he's picking up the prize. So in the book, Vernon, Vernon really wants to be like Jean-Claude Van Damme. Um, or like James Bond. And in fact, there's this wonderful passage where he says, you know, he's in court for the first time and there's a break, court is adjourned. And he says, men hardened by the friction of learning, steel men of savvy, quietly applied, crusty old boys of rough-hewn glory, probably smoke a lonely cigarette in their cells during lunch breaks from court. They probably don't talk to their mums. And that's what he goes on to do. Um, he goes to have a phone call with his mother and there's this sort of, you know, expectation of of what, you know, a good lifestyle for a man is, for, you know, this hardened, savvy man yeah. who might find himself in prison that just completely falls down at every point in the novel, purposefully so, I think. But that's almost pitifully echoed to me in the in the ceremony footage where you know, DBC Pierre goes up on stage and he starts out with that gag that we just heard about sniffing glue and yeah. then there's a dick joke and, you know, but then um, he runs out of steam. If, if, Vernon, if Vernon was here, he'd remember that movie that has all of these men dressed in sperm costumes. Do you remember that? And they're all in a... This big and he's sort of left clutching this check going... Oh, well, I'll have a pint with friends. And he tries to, like, thank everyone. But the silences in between his thank yous grow ever more piteous and awkward. I just have, I, I won't waste your time. I know I've got 15 minutes of allotted fame. But this will be quicker than that. Just to thank... Uh, and then eventually he's dragged off stage by Kirsty Walk, who wants to interview him. And the first thing she does is sort of snatch the cheque from him. And she says... This £50,000, there's tales of your exploits. Oh, Jesus, this won't even touch my back. OK, this is going to your creditors? Yeah. I see, yeah, and... Uh, all of it. Are they sitting outside waiting for you? If they're not now, I'm sure they will be in a minute. So did you really... She just more or less kidnap him, doesn't she? Yeah, she really she, does. She just sort of hauls him off and she keeps walking and talking. And what I've done a tiny bit of telly, walking and talking quite hard. Yeah. Actually. And she's, she really <laughs> I mean, she's is. very good at it because she's very good at telly. No, she's but, like but a he, bloodhound, he, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she will not give him rest. I mean, there's a point where he sort of tries to veer off to the left to leave her and she's like, no, no. And she drags him, she sticks him in a chair and she says, we're doing an interview now. Tell us more about your sort of scandalous past. Really, you know, not not letting him enjoy the moment at all. And um, that to me is kind of more of what comes out in this novel. Not necessarily, you know, not that it's uh, essentially a book about masculinity, but more than the idea of kind of slander against Americans and the fact that they may be fat or lazy. It's, it's more this sort of, I suppose, critique of, of what ideal or, or as Vernon puts it, TV movie yeah. lifestyle is and the characters that populate it and how that completely might mess your life up. Yeah. <laughs> how it no, might no, blow no, up I, in I your think face. Right. Actually, I've got a little passage here which I, which I chose because I thought it had more or less everything about the book, the TV movie stuff. Um, he's obsessed with panties, if you, if you, if you remember. <laughs> um, but also the bit where the writing goes over the top as well. So this is it. That's the kind of life I want, the life we were promised. A fuzzy old show with some flashes of panty and a happy ending. One of those shows where the kid's baseball coach takes him camping and teaches him self-respect. 
You've seen that show with electric piano notes tinkling in the background. Soft as ovaries hitting oatmeal. Oh, <laughs> yeah, and as brilliant as up until ovaries hitting oatmeal, I'm not quite sure what that means. So you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's a real mix of yeah. stuff. So when I describe it as a real old mess, I think I'll stick to that. Whether or, whether or not I'm beginning to think that that's not necessarily a terrible thing, I'm not sure. But I think one of the places that this book is actually um, where it does hold up is its portrayal of the media landscape and what it does to people's morals and what it does to their expectation of life and what it's like to watch the news. And I was really surprised to find as I was reading that actually for a book written in 2003, this is a fantastic introduction to the landscape that is Twitter, you yeah. know, where, where people who watch the news are, are sort of in a reaction economy to it. And they're bidden almost to to respond in in some way or to vote on what's good and what's bad on who they should hate who they should deem a murderer um in a way that blinkers them to fact and to actual truth you know and there's this very sort of desperate plea that goes throughout the book from vernon that he believes in the truth he believes in the justice system and he believes in the idea that you know rationality and real life will win out and save his life and it just, it's utterly ridiculous in no, context but, 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 of this novel in the but, same way that it is to think about that thing, those same things on the internet. No, that, I mean, what you were saying right at the start, when that, when that binary thing is set up and he he can't quite buy into it. But that, yeah. And that binary thing that we're extremely familiar with today. Yeah. Um, it also reminded me that um, there was a time when all the things that people now fear about the internet and social media and so on, creating uh, the world rather than reporting on it, you know, actually fabricating stuff in order to to fill up space is exactly the same fears that were had about 24 hour news mm. uh, in the sort of nineties, I think um, that it was distorting reality rather than simply reporting on it. And this, this catches the cusp actually just between this, because this guy poses as if he's working for CNN yeah, and CNN has got to fill up all that space with all, you know, 24 hours. It's a lot of, t- <laughs> <laughs> a lot of time and every single day. So, um, so stories get, you know, have to fill that time. Uh, but then it sort of morphs into the internet towards the end when they're when they're voting on death row as to who yeah. should live and die. I mean, in a way, one of the problems with with a book that that captures that quite so well is that now we think, oh yeah, we know that a bit. Do you think? No, I think if anything, it, it's sort of one of the only things that makes the novel brilliant in my eyes okay. because I just I uh, my partner read this book when he when it came out, but his memory of it was as being a, a novel of the eighties or the nineties, and. I kind of turned to him and I was like, what are you talking about? This novel has references to Eminem and to email and, and it's thoroughly a, an early 2000s novel. And to me, it's so spectacular that that sort of turning point has been caught because you don't think, yes, I already know this. You think it, it's almost a monument in a way. You think this is, this is the point at which perhaps things went wrong, you know, that, that it's captured on the page is sort of phenomenal to me. That's interesting. Yes, okay. I think I'll, I think I'll buy that. <laughs> um, do you think we should move on to the question of what happened next? Yes. To well, uh, one of the I, I've been bracketing together Yam uh, 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 Martel and uh, DBCP a bit, uh, but I think quite a hard question for in a hard quiz question would be in the name any of other of those people's books. They, were they both one hit wonders in a way? I mean, whether that matters or not. Yeah, I, I wonder though if if you're not. 
if you're not someone who is regularly listed for the prize by way of someone like Margaret Atwood or Salman Rushdie, whether uh, winning the booker once and not being longlisted or shortlisted again confines you to being a one-hit wonder, you know, whether that's just sort of the booker curse. Possibly. A booker curse might be, might be a subject for a podcast at some <laughs> stage. But I... But, but I think just even the general reader who doesn't necessarily know what's bookish, shortlisted and longlisted would be hard. You know, a, a bookish person, someone who keeps up with the book, well, the books might be hard, hard pressed to name another Pierre. I think book. that's fair. Um, I actually, I actually did read a couple of his latest one. I made my one and only appearance on Saturday Review, which was Radio 4's look at the week, the week in arts. Uh, <laughs> and funnily enough, we had a book by him called Breakfast with the Borgers, and it was set in a mysterious sort of boarding house with weird guests. And it turned out in the end, that they, I think, spoiler alert not required, um, that they were all dead. And this was some sort of poetry. And I thought this was a rather brilliant twist, and I was all, all set to say that. But whoever went first on this book's discussion said, and of course there's this really obvious twist you can see from about page two. <laughs> I hate those people. <laughs> and, I was, and then everyone was going, yeah, really obvious what's going to happen in the end. So I had to slightly change my tune. Yeah, oh yeah. Sort of, it a mile yeah, off. Well, well, bloody hell, all dead. Yeah, what? I've, I've got a really shady understanding of who DBC Pierre is. If You know, I Googled him the other night and all I came up with were articles about him selling a house from under his friend, you know, living in Mexico, having sort of alcohol and drug induced fugues throughout his <laughs> early to mid twenties. And I feel like I still don't quite know who this person is. No, uh, well, from memory, and I think even since shadiness was part of the appeal in a way, mm. um, I mean, it's got that uh, that name DBC stands for dirty, but clean. <laughs> Dirty but clean Pierre. Whereas in fact, he's a bloke called Peter Finlay, right. who was born in Australia, I think, to pretty middle class parents, British uh, parents. Uh, his, his family then moved to Mexico where he grew up, and, and, that, and that possibly why he writes so vividly about Mexico in this book. Then had a sort of rackety life, you're right, uh, drugs and uh, alcohol, particularly cocaine, which uh, didn't come cheap back then, possibly. I'm not, sure what, not sure of current prices, to be honest. Not anyway, the good stuff. <laughs> no, but uh, and, and, and as, uh, which meant getting into huge debts. And I think one of the things he did was he was house-sitting for someone, I believe, and then sold a house from under them. As you do. Yeah, uh, indeed. <laughs> for, for, like, and he was, he was kind of ashamed of all this, and that's, that's why he, his book of money went to his, his creditors. Um, so he did have this sort of rackety life. Then in what he sometimes describes as the last throw of the dice and sometimes as what the hell, he decides to write a novel. Mm. And, and and this is the novel that, it, that that sort of comes out. He he started off, I think, from the perspective he's he basically just seen some hopeless American kid after a school shooting being put into a police car, and uh, thought it's really he, the book started off and, and maybe continues as showing how boys like that just have no chance. It's not that that kid's fault. It's the culture that he's been brought up in. Yes. Um. But one thing he did change was that Vernon Godwin wasn't uh, wasn't guilty. So yes. that, that was a, so there was a big change. I think I think he currently lives in Ireland. Um, he still he gave an interview the Saturday after he won the Booker in the Guardian, in which all that he spelt out that rackety life in some detail. And I think, um, we as I say, the literary world was all a bit sort of agog at you know how how, how I'm afraid to say how cool all this is compared <laughs> to our little lives of you know reading books and thinking about them. Um, and how you know let's face it that's not the life of A.S. Byatt, is it? No, so, not so, quite. So so that would that that, that that I think that 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 probably was part of the appeal. Would you now recommend it to people as a, a historical curiosity, b a really really good living novel, or c not at all? <laughs> if I'm, if, that's not quite binary. That's trinary. <laughs> No, I can't say I would put this in anyone's hands. I, I would 
I have a list of books to recommend for people who perhaps were slightly disappointed by it in the way that I was. And again, that's not to say that it's a it's a bad book. It is a good book. It's just I don't know. It's a it's a slightly mangled reading experience. And there are, I think, two major twists in it, one that comes midway through and one that comes towards the very end. And I did sort of stand up and gasp at the one midway through. But after that point, I did slightly find myself wishing that the book would come to a conclusion faster. And I, I don't think that's the sign of a novel that you want to recommend to other people. I, I would say that if someone had the patience, I would hand it to people who have in the past been fans of something like The Crying of Lot 49 by Thomas Pynchon yeah. or In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. But ultimately, a reader who enjoyed those novels would be let down by Vernon Godlittle. Yeah, I think all those books hang together much better than this does, really. Yeah. It's a, f a first novel. I mean, you probably as surprised as anyone that it won the Booker <laughs> Prize. What about you, James? Who would you give this book to? Um, I think I probably would would put it in uh, of my categories, historical curiosity. Mm. Uh, it, 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 you're not, it's not a terrible book, so you, you, you're going to quite enjoy it and it's not going to be a waste of your time. But almost what's most interesting about it is that it won the Booker Prize 20 years ago. Yeah. And so we come now to a bit of promised interaction with our listeners in a feature we call Booker Clinic whereby uh, we become rather implausibly an agony aunt and agony uncle. Um, you send us uh, problems and we try and solve them through the medium of literature. Um, <laughs> Joe, have you got a question for us today? I do. And this one actually comes from the Booker office. So our anonymous <laughs> listener says, my two teenage kids aged 18 and 15 think for some reason that I am deeply uncool. They don't like my taste in music, films, clothes, etc., Perhaps if I recommended a cool book, they'd see me in a different light. Or maybe there's a book to make me feel better about my relationship with my kids. I might know who that's from, and I find that rather hard to believe. But anyway, <laughs> um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure recommending cool books is going to necessarily work. I think. I think recommending a book to your kids to turn around your opinion or their opinion of how cool you are might just put the nail in the coffin you know so my first recommendation actually isn't literary buy them tickets for Glastow or for All Points East or something like that I think that'll be more effective but perhaps a book to make you feel better about your relationship with your kids we can respond to that bit yeah I think I think we both came up with this actually which is Us by David Nichols uh, shortlisted a few years ago and he's got a, a son who regards him he's only got one but he regards him with great with great disdain and he's about to take them on a grand tour of Europe his son's <laughs> called Albie and here are his rules that he sets himself doesn't always live up to one energy never be too tired or not in the mood avoid conflict with Albie accept light-hearted joshing and do not retaliate with malice or bitter recriminations <laughs> good humor at all times this one I think actually is 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 pretty useful one Three, it is not necessary to be seen to be right about everything, even when that is the case. Four, be open-minded and willing to try new things. For example, unusual foods from unhygienic kitchens, experimental art, <laughs> unusual points of view, etc. This, this, this comes pretty hard to a middle-aged man, let me tell you. Five, be fun. Enjoy light-hearted banter. Try to relax is six. Don't dwell on the future for now. Seven, be organised, but eight... Maintain a sense of fun and spontaneity. <laughs> Nine, at all times be aware of Connie, that's his wife, listen. Ten, try not to fight with Albie. Oh, uh, it's such a great book. Such a great book. There was one I absolutely could swear was by Ann Tyler, which is that having a teenage child can sometimes be like, I think the first 
spaceship to uh, orbit the moon didn't land there. It was Apollo 8. And so when it orbited the moon for the first time, it disappeared around the dark side of the moon. And although NASA scientists were pretty sure that would be fine, nobody had actually been around the dark side of the moon before. Nobody knew for certain what was there. So there was a great tension while it disappeared and disappeared and disappeared, and then it re-emerged and they all cheered. And having a teenage child, I thought, Anne Tyler said, was a bit like that. Sometimes they will just disappear behind the moon and then they'll re-emerge and it'll all be fine. That's beautiful. It is beautiful, but it turns out it wasn't Anne Tyler at all because I, I said this to my kids. I said, you know, this great novelist Anne Tyler said this. And they said, Dad, in the scornful teenage way, you heard that on the Modern Family sitcom, <laughs> uh, which in fact I've checked up and it was from Modern Family. But it could have been from Anne Tyler, couldn't it? Well done, <laughs> Modern Family. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think the rather unfortunate thing is that most uh, book and novels which concern a parent-child relationship tend to be full of abuse and trauma and alcoholism and drug addiction, as with Vernon Godlittle and his unfortunate relationship with his mother, or indeed uh, the Patrick Melrose novels by Edward St. Aubin, Avni Doshi's Burnt Sugar is a mother-daughter relationship that is just absolutely traumatic to read. And, um, you know, I'd offer you those, but I think the only consolation would be uh, at least my relationship with my kids isn't this bad. Yeah, there is that. <laughs> and let's face yeah, I think literature might overdo that. You know, that there's a famous rewrite of Philip Larkin, which is, they tuck you up, your mum and dad. Yeah. <laughs> and they kind of do. And if you'd like a similarly um, helpful advice um, with your problems, send any queries you might have to the Booker Clinic. Which you can do by sending an email to contact us at bookerprizefoundation.org. And that is only one of many ways to get involved. Please do like and subscribe to the Booker Prizes podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you want to get in touch, you can leave comments about this episode at the Booker Prizes Substack, as well as the usual Booker Prizes social media accounts. That's, as you might imagine, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, where we also publish and promote a whole host of fascinating articles and videos at the Booker Prizes. We'd love to hear what you think, so please do get in touch. Bye. Bye. Booker Prize podcast is hosted by Joe Hamier and me, James Walton. It's produced and edited by Benjamin Sutton, and the executive producer is John Davenport. It's a Daddy Supi production for the Booker Prizes. Mm-hmm.